Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. There's a fire on the mountain burning out of control. The sky is set blazing all its red and gold. Temperatures rising and the wind is blowing hot. We gotta turn this ship around before we run aground. We gotta turn this ship around before we run aground. Welcome to Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXLAM and FM, streaming live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com, where you can binge listen to your heart's content. And we're brought to you by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community, designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. You can join a tour, celebrate life with Birches by calling 224 And this holiday season, we're very happy and proud to also be brought to you by Gibson's Bookstore in downtown Concord, New Hampshire. Books, toys, and gifts for the entire family. When you're doing your holiday shopping this season, visit Gibson's Bookstore and you'll find just the right gift for everybody on your holiday shopping list. I'm joined by... Chris Ryan. Chris, good morning. Good morning, good afternoon, whatever this is. Good morning, good afternoon, are. wherever it is. So I had an interesting uh, interesting conversation by text last night. Um, I was um, contacted by a reporter from the Washington Post. And the well, Washington Post wanted to talk to me about what he perceived or was pushing the idea about uh, using the word acrimony at the orientation of new congressional members in Harvard, at Harvard. Because what happens is when a new congressional class comes in, uh, there has traditionally been for many years a bipartisan orientation held at the uh, Institute of Politics, the Kennedy School uh, down in Cambridge, at which new members are oriented about policy issues and procedural issues. And this year, with 85 new members coming in and a lot of energy, um, uh, especially on the Democratic side with uh, younger members, a cadre of younger members of Congress who have apparently single-handedly dropped the average age of the congressional force by 10 years, um, there has been a real push from the uh, what we'll call the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. Now, the the reporter wanted to know if I had attended an orientation. I told him yes. He wanted to know what the purpose was. And I said, look, the general purpose is to orient new members to policy and general procedural issues with a broad brush presentation. Uh, he asked whether there had been a lot of lobbyists there. I told him I didn't remember a lot, a lot of lobbyists. 
And then he said, was it ever acrimonious? Um, do you uh, remember people ever being, and he used a word that I'm not going to use, um, uh, a word on uh, the radio, um, being upset like this? And I said, no, 2006 was very different. Uh, time for a new majority. There were numbers of blue dogs. And what I perceive as the frustration now evident among reform-minded and, and impatient progressives was not publicly on display uh, because, remember, 2006 was still a, a BlackBerry uh, universe. And what I said was, you know, when, when we were there, there was anticipation about getting to work to uh, do something about the war in Iraq and holding the administration uh, accountable. Um, and now there are many Democrats who feel deeply and express passionately. Who invited passionately. the dude with the vacuum cleaner? What's that? Who invited the dude with the vacuum cleaner to our party? I here? don't know, man. <laughs> but there are many Democrats. Yeah. What? To continue on. Sorry to interrupt. There are many Democrats who feel deeply and express passionately that incremental change in business as usual uh, will not adequately address the pressing social, economic, and security issues the country and the world face. And I, given the rise of nativist reactionary leaders at home and abroad, the liberal order forged after World War II was severely threatened, and the rise of Trump has given urgency and impetus to a new and diverse generation of citizen activists. Now members of a venerable institution who see real change inside and out as their mission, and they have the social media school tools and skills to communicate with their audience. So I'm not sure acrimony is the operative term. I think there's something deeper going on, more like a deep turbulence, and we're going to see whether and how the established leadership and institutions respond, because maybe it's necessary, maybe it's productive, and maybe in the 20 first century, government can no longer satis be satisfied with incrementalism. Maybe Democrats need to risk bold vision and bold action to rekindle a shared sense of purpose among a diverse and cynical electorate. And maybe this is about a return to the values of the Democratic Party as the champion of working people. Frankly, if you read reports about climate change and taking note of the corruption of our political process in the Trump administration and in the states such as North Carolina, the urgency of the moment is not mere acrimony. In the face of a, of a crisis, and make no mistake, we are facing a constitutional crisis of historic proportion and a looming planetary crisis, activism and challenge to the established order is often required. As Will Rogers said, I don't belong to an organized party. I'm a Democrat. So I think we're seeing overdue pressure for real change. We'll see how it plays out. Um, and you can see the videos that are now being posted online by um, inspiring new members of Congress who want to push for change. And speaking of change, um, the news has just come across the wire that it looks like John Kelly is now on the outs with the great Carrot Top Cantaloupe himself, John Kelly, Chief of Staff, who has withstood the barrage of insults and incompetence from uh, the uh, orange jumpsuit, the future orange jumpsuit wearing uh, cantaloupe, who calls himself the president, is on his way out. Yeah, that's uh, the news here on uh, Friday. It's a, a big Friday in Washington, D.C., as uh, John Kelly is, according to CNN, no longer on speaking terms with the president. They have not spoken for several days, and the relationship has um, gotten worse and uh, worse to the point of which uh, neither men see this as being uh, tenable. Uh, also today, um, as we do this show here on Friday, 
Um, there is going to be uh, significant uh, submissions made by special, special counsel Robert Mueller, who has to push forth uh, new disclosures on Friday in the cases involving Michael Cohen and uh, Paul Manafort, in which he is going to uh, recommend sentences and give details as to why those sentences are uh, recommended ahead of um, the federal judge's final sentencing decision on Tuesday in regards to uh, Cohen. So it's a big Friday. It is a big Friday. Well, look, people were, 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 were wondering for a long time how it was that John Kelly, who was seen as a person of integrity and one of the adults in the room, could put up with uh, what uh, Trump was dishing out. So it's um, the big surprise for me is how did Kelly last this long? How was he able to stomach uh, what was coming out of uh, Trump for so long? Um, maybe it finally got to a point where he just couldn't take it anymore. I think that that's uh, obviously the case. Um, and, you know, the question is where are they going to go from here? Um, the feeling and philosophy around Washington has been that Nick Ayers, who is the chief of staff to Vice President Pence will be the the next uh, chief of staff if, in fact, because we've seen and heard things about, you know, Kelly being fired before so, or resigning so, and, and just about everybody else in this administration. So until it actually happens, you, you wait. It seems like you know, there's kind of a process where the uh, individuals initially go to the press and say that they've had enough. Then they make up. Then they go back to the press again. And their third or fourth time, as is the case with Sessions or Tillerson, is actually when something happens. So I don't know which time we're on now. This is the second or third time. And the fourth is the one where it's it's at the break, breakup actually happens. You know, uh, Kelly has moved all his stuff out of the apartment, but you know he's left a couple heavy things still in there that he he doesn't want to get out of there yet. I don't know. I we'll see. I think I we're left st- my roasting. I left my <laughs> roasting pan back, back, back in my back in my, my apartment in the White House. So I, you can kick me out. You know, back in my clothes. Right. I, I need my roasting pan, and I got my can opener, and, and it just happens to be in a place where he has to walk past the president. <laughs> One more time but, you know, to see I'm if not, they can make it. My up. roasting pan, I've been in it mostly for, <laughs> for for a lot of the time I've been there. And my can opener, well, I've tried to not use it, but now I've opened this can of worms. So I better go back for the roasting uh, pan and the can opener. We and, laugh because it's better than crying. Oh, my God. And meanwhile, with special prosecutor... Uh, Robert Mueller um, about to uh, lay a bigger hammer down on um, Messrs. Cohen and Manafort. You've got a real contrast there in the way I think he may treat two people. Um, Manafort, who, as he laid out in a recent memo, um, uh, was uh, was lying to him and lying to the FBI uh, throughout his supposed cooperation because Manafort was uh, was cooperating with Trump and thought he could get away with lies, is probably going to get the, the, the anvil dropped on him. Michael Cohen took a very, very different tack. Uh, first of all, he... He took the unusual step of pleading guilty with no plea deal, a highly unusual step. Um, he took the step of, uh, of expressing contrition mm-hmm. and remorse for what he had done and what he had become involved with. And he's also a guy who's in a position to really help the Mueller 
um, uh, the, the Mueller uh, prosecution because he knows where a lot of the bodies are buried, including all about the Russia-Trump connections. Indeed. Um, both of them have, in my view, uh, significant information to share. Uh, one gave up on the hopes of a presidential pardon in Michael Cohen. Uh, he you know, showed a willingness to, uh, to work with the president, but the president never... He never threw him a line. Uh, Manafort, in my view, is still holding out hopes for that. And um, he is going to have to make a decision here in the short term as to what he's going to do. He's either going to um, be forthcoming and provide the information that Robert Mueller is looking for. um, And you'll get back to a point where he can have a plea deal. Or um, he is going to, um, you know, hope that the pardon comes forth. But uh, I I think that the president can ill afford to to do that. So uh, he is... He is going to, in my view, work with the special counsel as well when, uh, when all is said and done. And um, we are finally uh, nearing a conclusion to uh, this investigation, which has been hanging over uh, the White House and our country for years now. Well, there uh, at least reports in the press suggest that Mueller has um, now taken a renewed focus on the transition Um, uh, during the presidency because we now uh, know that during that transition period from campaign to presidency, Mm -hmm. uh, the Carrot Top Cantaloupe was still actively pursuing um, a Trump Tower uh, in Moscow. He wanted to give a $50 million penthouse to his friend Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putinsky and Trump Putinsky were going to get together at the top of this penthouse in Moscow and drink vodka together, uh, laughing and joking about the being autocrats until the cows came home. But that didn't come to be. As Trump said, I was looking lightly at a Trump Tower. Uh, how does one look lightly at a multi-million dollar project, I don't know. But that was happening during the transition. Now, one of the problems for the Trump presidency and the whole team is that it also suggests that Michael Pence may be at great risk as head of the transition. Uh, What did he know? And And he was also selected uh, by Paul Manafort um, as the VP. That's right. So the shoes, uh, it looks like people are shoe shopping because they don't want to wear the shoes they want to drop the shoes, and uh, we're all eagerly awaiting to see what Paul Manafort uh, and Michael Cohen will be sentenced to and what special counsel Robert Mueller has up his sleeve for Donald Trump, Ivanka, Jared, Eric, Donnie, and the whole crew. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXLAM and FM streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com brought to you by the Birches at Concord New Hampshire's first assisted living community designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia or other forms of memory impairment you can join a tour, celebrate life at the Birches, call 224-9111 and we're brought to you this holiday season by Gibson's Bookstore in downtown Concord books, toys and gifts for the entire family on your holiday shopping list, come on down down to Gibson's for absolutely the best time and the best gifts you can give. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM. We'll be back after this to talk about STEM to STEAM with Bob Baines, the former mayor of Manchester, New Hampshire.
Welcome back to Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXLAM and FM, streaming live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com, where our shows are archived for your binge listening pleasure. We're brought to you by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. You can join a tour and celebrate life at the Birches by calling 224-9111, and we're brought to you this this holiday season by Gibson's <coughs> Bookstore, Concord's downtown destination for books, toys, gifts. It's a great local business right next to a terrific cafe. Come on downtown for the holiday season and shop at Gibson's Bookstore. I'm very happy to welcome a special guest to Off the Record, uh, my friend Bob Baines. Um, a long and storied and really fascinating career. Bob grew up in Manchester. He earned a bachelor's degree in music education from Keene State College, a master's in school administration from Riviere, so he's uh, New Hampshire-based. He had additional graduate study at the University of New Hampshire. He's worked as a music teacher, uh, assistant school principal. He was the principal of Manchester High School West, Um, was the mayor of Manchester, president of a college, uh, and has been working, among other things, to promote STEAM in New Hampshire schools. Bob, welcome to Off the Record. I thought I was just listening to my obituaries. (laughs) Well, you know, Wikipedia comes in very, very handy. I know, it came in very handy handy there. Uh, And as we were talking before the show, you know, uh, I always say to people, I used to be somebody, right. but we still are, and you still are. I'm really glad to see you. Um, I, you know, and I, I'm curious, um, working working backwards, um, you're, you're, you started your career as a music educator. Yeah. Uh, you ended you have up some in, familiarity with music. A little, I have a, li- a little bit, but right. you probably know more about music than I do because I never learned to read music. Oh, really? Yeah, I do it all by ear. Oh, wow. Good for you. Well, maybe. <laughs> I mean, it's a language that I, that I wish I learned. But my, my, story, my, my story about why I never learned to read music is, is, is one that all parents should take a lesson from. And I'll, sure. it's brief, but it's important. When I was very young, my mother signed me up for piano lessons. And she sat me next to a piano teacher who dutifully came, and I dutifully began taking the lessons. And after about three or four lessons, I told my mom, I hate the piano. I'm not interested. I, I don't want to do it. And I, and, and, she, and I would never tell her why. Yeah. Well, the reason was that my piano teacher had such bad body odor that I nearly <laughs> fainted every time I sat on the piano bench next to that her. Will do it. And that was it. That that, that so ended funny. my formal music training. And later it. I picked up the guitar when the Beatles came to town sure. and um, have been playing <clears throat> guitar ever since. But I'm sure there's a list of very famous musicians that have never read music. So Well, uh, there probably oh, is. Of course there are. A lot yeah. of blues and, and folk guys. Yeah. But you Move from music education into right. school administration, right. later into politics, yeah. and 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 then in now in a in an advocacy role Correct. about steam. Um, I'm I'm curious. Uh, tell me about your thoughts about how your early training as a music educator um, uh, 
and your work in the schools led you into a political career? Oh, my goodness gracious. Uh, well, I'm not sure they're all connected. Uh, you know, when I was a young lad and growing up in Manchester, we had a mayor who had been mayor at the time, 16 years, Joseph A. T. Benoit. He was an immigrant from Quebec. And he was being challenged by a very young uh, gentleman by the name of John Morgan. It was in his 30s, and I got very interested in that race when I was in the 8th grade. And I got turned on to politics. I was excited this young person was coming in and challenging this person who had been in office, in my opinion, too long, even though I was in the 8th grade. And he lost a very close election. And uh, the reason I was interested, uh, his uh, daughter and my sister took dancing lessons together. And I said, wouldn't it be cool to know the mayor of Manchester? If that happened, well, two years later, we ran and became mayor, and then I did know the mayor of Manchester and got very interested in politics. So I had a very early goal in life that someday I would be mayor of Manchester. So it really wasn't connected with my career. It was an inspiration from my childhood. I saw someone really interested in Manchester and the city who loved the city and wanted to get involved, and I said, someday I'm going to do that. So I always kept that in my fascinating. mind. You know what? It's fascinating to me because, I mean, if I think about what I was interested in in eighth grade or even thinking about, politics was so far yeah, from anything that I had in mind. I mean, I, I grew up in, in New York City um, as a kid, and uh, in eighth grade, I mean, I was in a, a small school in New York, but politics for me was it was it, it was just it wasn't even on my radar well, picture screen. me uh, at the kitchen table at our house on one jefferson street in manchester this eighth grader with a little transistor radio that i had that my older brother had given me for my birthday listening to wkbr am it was twelve forty on the radio dial back then listening to the results of the election that was my inspiration for politics so literally when i was in college i was telling my uh, cl- classmates, especially my fraternity brothers, uh, that by the age of 35, I was going to be mayor of Manchester. Well, that didn't quite work out because I had a career in music. Then I went on into school administration, actually ran for the school board in my early 20s. And after three tries, got elected and got reelected. Went into school administration. Um, I got married, had kids. So my aspirations for politics got put aside. But it was always uh, in my mind that I was going to do it. And the time was right in 1999, and uh, I had taken a year of leaves of absence the year before that to go to work in Washington with Eunice Kennedy Shriver and Sergeant Shriver, so that sort of spurred additional what interest. What did you do with the Shriver? Well, they had a program called Community of Caring, which was a values education program uh, uh, that she had started, uh, part of the Joseph P. Kennedy Jr. Foundation. I had adopted the program at West High School. And uh, she had heard about our success with it. Um, it focused on caring, respect, responsibility, trust, and family that you put as part of the culture of the school, the culture of the classroom, culture of the entire school environment. And she heard about our success at West, and she came and visited my school, West High School in Manchester. We had 2,000 students. And she spent the whole day at the school. She was very excited about what we did. Uh, and then a couple of months later, I got a call from her office and said, we Mrs. Shriver would like you to come to a dinner party at her house in Maryland. And I said, how did this kid from One Jefferson Street get connected with Eunice Kennedy Shriver, the sister of President Kennedy? And sure enough, my wife and I went down and we're at a dinner party at her house in Maryland. And shortly thereafter, she and uh, I got a call from her office. She was forming an advisory group around the program. She wanted me to be a, uh, on the program uh, in the advisory group, and she wanted me to be the president of it, of this board that she was following. So, next thing I know, I'm down there uh, 
with this icon of uh, America and Sergeant Shriver, who I got to know quite well, the founder of the Peace Corps, the War in Poverty. And uh, at a certain point, after, two years after that, she asked me to be the, the executive director of the program and come down to Washington full-time, which I couldn't do, but I went down as an interim, found my replacement, and that rekindled my interest in running for mayor because I had never really been out of a school. Think about it. When you're a teacher or a student, uh, you, you just don't get out of your school. And I was down in Washington near the White House. My office was two blocks on the White House. And I came back and I started talking to my wife and my family and my friends and said, hey, maybe this is the time. And that's when I ran for mayor. Man, oh, man. That's a quick summary of a yeah, long process. You know, it's a quick summary of, uh, of, of, of important formative years in, in life um, and pretty remarkable connections uh, that you made. And also, uh, the, your focus on education and your work in education um, is really critical to all the things that are important about the future of New Hampshire and the future of the country because we're facing a time now of uh, incredible challenge at both the state and the national level. Um, Here in the state, um, you and I have just um, uh, been at a forum on the future um, that was put on by the New Hampshire uh, College and University Council Council, um, forum with educators and uh, people in business, uh, many of whom are are uh, working uh, to uh, help connect businesses and universities and dealing with the questions about developing a workforce in New Hampshire where unemployment is very low, uh, jobs are going begging, but people are very concerned about the state of the schools and whether or not our schools sure. are producing the kinds of students with the kinds of skills that are really suited for the jobs that are available today. It's a, it's a perennial problem. Well, you know, it's a complex problem with a fairly simple solution. I, I just had that conversation with Val, who brought up the idea of uh, uh, the concept, we need to start working with K-12 through education, which has really been my passion, that we need to turn students on to math and science at a very young age. By the, the, A lot of studies out there say by fourth grade, if you haven't turned people on to math and science, you've lost them. Well, we need to change the way we teach students, the way uh, we engage students in problem-based learning, project-based, hands-on, minds-on learning. It's turning the whole concept of traditional education on its head and thinking about way we can reach kids in different ways. And that sort of goes back to my music background. You know, it's so, I, I tell people, um, let's say if I were teaching a student uh, about the trumpet, if I just explained the technology of the trump- trumpet to them and showed them, well, you press the first valve down and you, you get an F, you wouldn't know that because you can't read music. So, uh, but I never put the trumpet in their hands to actually play the trumpet. I wouldn't be successful. So... We need to think of that concept of teaching students in a much different way, engaging them with project-based hands-on, minds-on learning, and get away from the traditional teaching of the teacher lecturing, the students taking notes and taking tests, but uh, le- unleash them uh, in a very uh, meaningful way to change the way they engage in the classroom. Um, I serve on the National Council on the Arts, and uh when you were speaking about experiential learning and you bring your, uh, the example uh, from uh, worlds of music into right. it, uh, it, it really, uh, the core it strikes for me, or the chord it strikes for me, is about creativity 
uh, in learning and the way creativity and the arts are integral to a what I think of as a complete uh, or holistic curriculum for students, especially in the formative years of education uh, from from K to 12. And it's something that uh, is um, is is under stress given budgetary constraints um, uh, in New Hampshire and nationally. Um, I'm talking with Bob Baines, the former mayor of Manchester, um, a former uh, president of a college here in New Hampshire, Chester College for a time. This is Off the Record with Paul Hodes, brought to you by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, and other forms of memory impairment, and by Gibson's Bookstore, your downtown Concord destination for holiday shopping, books, toys, gifts for for the whole family Gibson's bookstore this holiday season. We'll be right back with more Off the Record with Paul Hurts. Don't go away. We're back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live over the Internet at nhtalkradio.com, where you can binge listen to all our previous shows to your heart's content. Join my dozens of listeners who enjoy listening to the shows we've recorded in the past. And we're brought to you by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. You can join a tour, celebrate life at the Birches by calling 224-9111. And we're brought to you this holiday season by Gibson's Bookstore in downtown Concord on our fabulous renovated Main Street. Gibson's Bookstore features books, toys, and gifts for the entire family. When you do your holiday shopping these holidays, don't forget about Gibson's Bookstore. Come on down to downtown Concord and visit Gibson's Bookstore. I'm very pleased to uh, return with my guest, Bob Baines, former mayor of Manchester, among other notable career credits for Bob. Uh, we've been talking about music education and politics and uh, how, how they all seem to intersect. Mm-hmm. Bob, I was an accidental congressman. Uh, when I was running for Congress, I had to um, uh, get uh, the Concord Monitor, as I recall, to stop calling me a kiddie rock star. I kept telling them, hey, you know, I, I play uh, rock and roll for families and children. At the time, I uh, had a band called Pegasus with my wife, and we were playing rock and roll for kids and families. So they called me a kiddie rock star, and I said, you know, I'm trying to become a statesman here, and it's going to be really hard for me to become a statesman if you keep calling me Kitty Rockstar. How about uh, calling me former assistant attorney general and prosecutor, which was my my day job? Right, you know, I mean, exactly. that. Um, uh, and what it brought to mind is uh, one of the things it brought to mind is the way in which sometimes uh, arts and creativity are underappreciated in society and our educational system and our political system as critical to uh, building the skills necessary uh, for employment and for life. 
Well, you know, that's why uh, I, I was, when I was connected with Jeremy Hitchcock, who's actually a former student of mine and founded the company Dine and now sold it off to Oracle, and <laughs> Jeremy's starting another company now. We talked about changing the way we teach students in school, and we started the STEAM program, Science, Technology, Engineering, Arts, and Math, because oftentimes you just talk about STEM, and you don't talk, uh, interject the creativity that's involved in that. Think of a person like Jeremy who started this, uh, you know, internet performance company and um, and became a multi-million dollar company. His background is in music. A lot of people don't know that. Jeremy's an accomplished trombone player and has played in the Freeze Brothers big band. And uh, he was involved in the music program at West and went on to uh, Worcester uh, Polytechnic Institute. But the foundation of his life was that creativity that he felt with music, you know, getting up and playing uh, solo uh, doing a solo and trombone in the jazz band and, you know, improvising, as you say. You know, you need that creative spirit to, to do creative things. Uh, Dean Kamen, for example, uh, all the great work that he's doing. When I was a college president, I was president of an arts college, and he used to say, send me your creative people. He didn't say, send me your scientists and technology people because we didn't have any but he was interested in creative people think that people that can think outside of the box that have that kind of background that allow them to think beyond so it seemed that we we piloted at manchester west uh, the school that i was principal at and jeremy was a student at um, we've had tremendous results in terms of the students performance because you teach them in different ways if again you go back to a, a traditional classroom the teachers lecturing the students taking notes they, uh, students learned how to do that. They, they might go in and take a test and they might meet. Let's say you get a 90 on the test and you walk out the door and five minutes later, you haven't retained the information because you've memorized. When you do projects and you work in teams and you create things and you learn the things that you still need to learn, whether it's in math and science or whatever it might be, you retain that information much longer uh, and sustain it because you've actually learned by doing. And that's what STEAM was all about. And we've got to have a successful program at West in Manchester, McLaughlin Middle School in Manchester, and up north at White Mountains Regional High School. And we actually have the students at White Mountains and West. They're, they're working together. They're visiting each other's schools. They're, uh, they spent a day at Plymouth State University together. So uh, there are lots of different ways to change the trajectory of education. One is to get away from the traditional environment. So here's something that you may find particularly interesting. Um, uh, my wife, Pego, is chair of the board of Arts for NH, uh, which was formerly known as Citizens for, uh, um, Citizens for the Arts right. here in New Hampshire. Um, it is the statewide advocacy organization advocating for arts and creativity in the state. Hmm. And the current focus of Arts 4NH, one of the most significant focuses for the group, um, and I've been attending the board meetings and advising, um, is to help um, uh, redirect the s official state policy for education from STEM to STEAM. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, I it's, appreciate that. <laughs> it, well, it, and it's, it's really important, and it's actually picking up a lot of steam because yeah. <laughs> um, uh, Arts 4NH uh, works as a grassroots organization, as a hub for information uh, for various arts organizations. Um, but we're finding um, uh, friends in the legislature who get the connection between creativity and performance and creativity uh, and the workforce and who understand that uh, creativity and the arts are 
an integral part or should be an integral part of uh, an education, even if it's science and technology focused. The other thing is I, I attended a STEAM conference up in Vermont when we were starting the STEAM program in Manchester. And then we had a um, eclectic group of people from all walks of life, different careers and everything. And there was this one student representative there, and he was autistic. And we had a breakout session, and the question came up, why the arts? Why, why are we putting the A in STEAM? And everybody had their opinion of it. And then it came to this autistic student, and he said, you know, the arts are a metaphor for creativity. And then people clicked with it because they, they think of the traditional arts, but it's, it's, it's the whole creative aspect of arts that you put into the, the product that you're designing. You know, uh, Jeremy talked about it all the time, that, that creativity, the, the, uh, people of, the ability of people to learn to, uh, together, to create together and think of what can be as opposed to what is. You need people that can think creatively, and that's where the arts become a critical part of STEM. Um, as... Uh, one of the things that I'm seeing as a member of the National Council on the Arts is that it's, it's now official federal policy, despite the efforts of the administration to do away with uh, funding for the National Endowment on the Arts and the National Endowment on the Humanities. Despite all that, um, it's actually federal policy. STEAM is federal policy now. Yeah, I, I, I was ver very much aware of that. In fact, when we were starting the program, I was encouraging, for example, up at White Mountains, they were calling it STEM. And I said, I really encourage you to call it STEAM because that's the direction the federal government is moving into in terms of funding. And you're going to be in a much better position if you include the arts. And, and once people understand why the A, they get it. Uh, so I'm glad that's still part of policy despite efforts to take it out because you can't have STEM without the arts and, and creativity. And in fact, again, despite um, the administration's position on, on cutting the legs out from under the National Endowment for the Arts and the Humanities, um, Congress has actually increased funding for um, uh, the arts and the humanities in each of the past two budget cycles. The 2019 federal budget actually contains an, a, another um, $2 million raise in the budgeting for the National that's Endowment awesome. on the Arts. Now, that's not a lot of money. I mean, you've, yeah. got, a, you've got a little chip of an agency which is funded to, uh, for 2019 at $155 million, but is leveraging partnerships throughout the federal government, uh, whether it's the um, uh, Department of Defense, um, uh, or the Veterans Administration, uh, the Education Department, uh, the National Endowment leverages uh, its very sm uh, small funding by applying its expertise across the board. Bringing it back to New Hampshire, Arts for NH, uh, and programs like the one that you're involved with, uh, STEAM, uh, really need to reach both the Department of Education, uh, the legislature, um, and uh, the office of the governor. And I can tell you that, um, you know, we've just uh, been through a, a, a midterm election. Democrats have now taken control of the House, the Senate, uh, and the Executive Council. Governor Sununu was reelected for uh, a second term. Um, in terms of uh, a focus on STEAM, in terms of focus on the arts, um, and putting my best bipartisan hat on, I can tell you that uh, there's been uh, an awful lot of very positive uh, response from the governor's office oh, about 
um, uh, uh, turning STEM into STEAM in New Hampshire and um, funding for the arts. The governor, um, uh, I think the governor gets it. He definitely does get it, you know, and he, you know, he's a graduate MIT, you know, so he understands the, what the creativity that we're talking about and thinking about uh, delivering education a different way. When you think about the program that he went through or anybody that goes, uh, on Jeremy at uh, WPI, you're doing a lot of that project-based hands-on learning. You're just not sitting and memorizing things. You're creating things. And so he, he would naturally get it. The other thing about it, you know, he's a product of the public school system. His mother was on the school board in uh, Salem for many, many years. And his dad, I was very involved with the State Principals Association. I really had a great respect for him because he was a strong advocate for public schools and bringing technology into the schools and working on school reform. So it uh, doesn't surprise me all, and I have a good relationship with the governor. I know he's open to this, and he understands it very, very well, that if we're going to change education for the better, we have to look at different ways of delivering education for kids because kids learn in different ways. They all don't learn in the same way. And if we do keep delivering the same uh, education the same old way we've been doing for 100 years, we're going to continue to get the same results. And we, we, the demographics have shifted in New Hampshire. The demands of businesses have shifted. And we have to shift and change the way we deliver education in our schools throughout the state. Yeah, it's, it's really clear that, that there's a lot of uh, discussion now about the ways in which uh, the education system must change to meet the demands of the 21st century because our traditional education system was designed uh, in the early years, uh, in, well, in the late years of the 19th century, right. the early years of the 20th century, and it was designed to produce cadres of well, people who wouldn't, workers, think, right. who wouldn't think for themselves, exactly. who would simply follow orders. Yes. And now, in a world where nobody wants to follow orders, <laughs> where information and digital technology has democratized uh, the way uh, people learn, the way people think, the way people communicate, and the way people um, uh, do their jobs, uh, the education system in the country uh, is in many places woefully far behind. So the Absolutely. idea of experiential learning, project-based learning, and introducing creativity and through STEAM and, and internships. And extended learning, getting students out of the classroom. And learning. continuing learning. Yes, continuing. But, you know, students, you just don't have to be in school all the time to learn. There's a school in Providence that actually became a model for what we were trying to do with STEAM. The Met School in Providence, Rhode Island, uh, it's a 9 through 12 uh, high school. It was founded by Dennis Litke, who was a, actually a New Hampshire educator in the 80s over in Winchester. He went down and worked with the Gates Foundation, started the school where students are only in classes, and they're not really they're not traditional classes, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Every Thursday, uh, Tuesday and Thursday, they're in the community working in businesses, learning skills, and being exposed to different careers. We've been talking with Bob Baines here on Off the Record about the future of education in New Hampshire and the nation. Bob, thanks for joining. It's been a pleasure, Paul, and good seeing you again. This is Off the Record with Paul Hodes, brought to you by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community, designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. You can join a tour and celebrate life at the Birches by calling 224-9111. And we're brought to you this holiday season by Gibson's Bookstore in downtown Concord, the place to go for all your holiday shopping, books, toys, and gifts for the entire family. Come on down and visit Gibson's Bookstore. This is Off the Record with Paul Hodes. We'll be back after this to wrap up this week's edition. See you soon.
Welcome back to Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM. Streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com and brought to you by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. You can join a tour and celebrate life at the Birches by calling 224-9111. And we're brought to you this holiday season by Gibson's Bookstore in downtown Concord. Books, toys, and gifts for the whole family on your shopping list. You can come on down to Gibson's for a great time and great holiday shopping. Well, what a great week it's been in politics. We talked with Chris Ryan about developments in Washington Looks like Robert Mueller is closing in, going shoe shopping to drop some shoes on the Trump administration. Not to wear them, but to drop them. And we talked with Bob Baines, former mayor of Manchester, about STEM to STEAM and why creativity in arts education is so critical in the 21st century to develop a skilled workforce and people who know how to work together. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM, streamed live at nhtalkradio.com. Thanks to our great sponsors, the Birches at Concord and Gibson's Bookstore. Thanks to you all for listening. We'll be back next week with more Off the Record with Paul Hodes.